You're listening to the Quince podcast. In a scathing speech at the United Nations on 5th April, President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine accused Russia of a litany of horrors and alleged atrocities and even challenged the UN body to act immediately or dissolve itself altogether. And this outrage comes in the aftermath of the alleged massacre in towns around Kiev, where bodies of 410 civilians were discovered. Russian and Ukraine forces have been trading fires in this region since 27 February and only stopped in early April. And grimmest discoveries were made in the suburb of Bucha, where more than 300 bodies were discovered, with some with their hands bound, flesh burned and shot in the back of the head. Available satellite images accessed by Reuters from mid-March show a 45-foot-long trench dug up into the grounds of a Bucha church where a mass grave was found. Images from the ground also show that civilians appear to have been killed on their bicycles while walking down the street or in their own gardens. The indiscriminate killings and atrocities have of course touched the global nerve and also led to US President Biden calling for a war crimes trial over the alleged atrocities against Ukrainian civilians. It also triggered the strongest reaction yet from India, who condemned the killings and called for an independent investigation into the quote-unquote deeply disturbing matter. The summary killings of civilians add to the growing body of evidence of numerous violations by Russian forces of the laws of war, which beg the question, what will it take to bring the Bucha victims to justice? In today's episode, we unpack these alleged war crimes, what exactly happened in Bucha and India's strong reaction. For this, I spoke to Nandan Unnikrishnan, a distinguished fellow at the Observer Research Foundation. I also spoke to my colleague Saptar Shibasak from the Quince International News Desk and Vakasha Sasdev, the Quince Legal Editor. You're tuned in to The Big Story, the podcast where we dissect the headline-making news for you. And I'm your host, Imad. Since the start of the invasion, as many as 3,400 civilians, including 121 children, have died in Ukraine, according to a recent UN report. But as I stated earlier, some of the worst atrocities in Ukraine were only discovered earlier this week, when Ukrainian forces re-entered previously occupied territory in and around Kiev. But what they found were scenes from a horror movie, with bodies of civilians with bounded hands, close-range gunshot wounds and signs of torture, according to an AP report. So far, bodies of 410 civilians have been found. According to the AP report, the journalists saw bodies of at least 21 people in various spots around Bucha, a town just 25 kilometers northwest of Kiev. In one instance, an analysis of satellite video and imagery by the New York Times shows a Russian armed vehicle firing several high-caliber rounds at a person on a bicycle. A review of satellite imagery by the newspaper also showed that many of the civilians were killed in Bucha more than three weeks ago. Russia has claimed that these images are hoaxed and called for an emergency UN Security Council meeting on what it called quote-unquote provocations of Ukrainian radicals in Bucha. However, according to my colleague Saptarshi Basak from the Quince International News Desk, Russia has not shied away from using tactics that involve indiscriminate killings of civilians and destruction of civilian infrastructure. Yeah, Ahmed. So basically, analysts agree that civilians dying in Ukraine is no accident, really. Um, they agree that Putin targeting civilians and civilian infrastructure uh, is, is strategic. There is a logic to it. And the logic is that brute force uh, via the indiscriminate use of bombs and artillery will crush the will and spirit of the people. It will end their resistance and it will eventually lead to not only their capitulation, but also the capitulation of the government, the president. In this case, the capitulation of Kiev. 
Um, and there are uh, examples in the past um, with respect to this where Putin has uh, used similar strategies. Uh, one of them is from Chechnya and the other is from Syria. So actually in 2003, the United Nations had said that Grozny, which is the capital of Muslim majority uh, Chechnya, was the most destroyed city on earth. And the reason for that is the relentless bombing that the city witnessed in 1999. And the man behind that uh, was Vladimir Putin. Uh, when Russia began its assault on Chechnya, it aimed at crushing the secessionist and insurgent groups in the region. And Putin was not expecting the Chechens to put up a serious fight, similar to what uh, expectations he had in Ukraine. But in Chechnya, when his initial campaign failed to win decisively, he sent thousands of Russian troops and ordered um, the aerial and artillery bombardment of Grozny. And the capital was completely flattened. And uh, thousands of civilians died and eventually... Uh, the government cap uh, capitulated and uh, a, a pro-Kremlin government was installed and uh, that that government continues to rule there today. And Grozny is not the only time when Putin has ordered his military to completely demolish a civilian area. In fact, uh, in 2016, the Syrian city of Aleppo was so ruthlessly bombed by the Russian Air Force and the Syrian Air Force that it came to symbolize the extent to which the Russians were willing to go to crush any form of resistance against President Bashar al-Assad, who Putin was aiding during the Syrian civil war. So, for example, when Russia bombed Al-Sakhur hospital at least four times within a matter of weeks, um, sparking international outrage, uh, what did Russia do in response? Uh, Russian general organized a press conference and he asserted that all the photos, videos and eyewitness statements uh, that were bringing Russian atrocities and human rights violations to light, they were all quote-unquote plain forgeries. This, this has been documented, uh, this statement has also been documented by Human Rights Watch. And this sounds eerily familiar to what the Russians are saying in Busha as well, that it is a manufactured uh, sort of conspiracy to, by the West to, to, to portray the Kremlin in, in a, a bad way. But uh, in Aleppo, the hospitals and residential areas were aerially bombed at least a dozen other instances uh, during the Aleppo offensive towards the end of 2016. And uh, thousands fled and those who couldn't flee or those who weren't blown away by the bombs had to endure extreme hardship because uh, of the food and water supply that had been cut off uh, by the aggressors. And Human Rights Watch has documented all of this and what we are seeing in Ukraine right now, it is quite similar to not just Aleppo, but also Grozny, as we spoke about. For weeks now, we have seen reports of Russia firing missiles into civilian areas and residential areas as well. And now we have reports of indiscriminate killings in Bucha, with Ukraine accusing Russia of genocide. And this begs the question, is this the turning point in this war? We took this question to Nandan Unikrishnan, a distinguished fellow at the Observer Research Foundation who looks after the Eurasian program of studies. According to him, there are still a lot of unanswered questions about these killings and that in the fog of war, the first victim is the truth. He adds that more concrete evidence needs to be presented before fingers are pointed at anyone. The questions on Bucha are still uh, wide open. Uh, let us start with some basic facts. Uh, the Russians withdrew from Bucha on the 30th or 31st. The uh, bodies were discovered on the 3rd or the 4th. Uh, so why such a gap? And particularly when you consider that uh, nobody for these three days ever spoke of dead bodies on the streets of Bucha. But nevertheless, let's leave that for uh, a proper investigation if one is ever held. The second point is, which to me is completely inexplicable. When the Russians demanded on the 3rd of April, a discussion on the killings in Bucha, 
in the Security Council. Britain, which is the current president of the Security Council, refused to table the question. This was the Russian Federation wanting a discussion and yet they refused. So there is something that, that there is a bit of a disconnect, you know? So uh, there are several such questions which, uh, you know, you have videos and all going in both ways. So basically what the Bucha killings and the uh, noise around it proves is that in the fog of war, the first casualty is truth. I genuinely don't know. I'm not saying the Russians are incapable of doing this. They are. I mean, no nation has copyright on heinous uh, uh, murders like this. I mean, just look at the US record in Vietnam, Iraq, wherever, or many others. I mean, it's not as if it hasn't happened anywhere else. So no nation has a copyright. I'm sure if, you know, uh, given the opportunity, even uh, anybody who is strong would like to inflict damage on someone who's weaker and is considered an enemy. So that is one aspect of it. But as I said, there are wide open questions on this whole thing. The second, the third uh, set of questions that <clears throat> I would have is what is independent? You see, the point is that the Western countries and Ukraine, as far as when they say independent, they mean any inquiry without Russia, right? Now, would that be a fair inquiry? That Then you have already condemned them. Why go through an inquiry? <clears throat> In that context, I'm genuinely curious as to what India meant by independent, because surely India does not mean the same thing. So uh, that is the third question that arises out of all this, you know, but that I have little doubt that whoever is guilty of these uh, crimes, they should be brought to book. And if possible, they should be punished. But I think establishing that truth is well nigh impossible at this point of time. And Mr. Unnikrishnan is right about the need for more concrete evidence needed when terms like genocide or war crimes are said by foreign leaders such as Zelensky or Biden. In fact, Biden has more than once called Putin a quote-unquote war criminal. Now, genocide is seen as the gravest and the most serious of all crimes committed against humanity. As defined by the UN Genocide Convention of December 1948, it includes acts of quote-unquote committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial or religious group. And war crimes are defined as, quote-unquote, the gravest breaches of the Geneva Convention, which are agreements signed after World War II that laid down international humanitarian laws during the wartime. An example of a war crime could be the deliberate targeting of civilians. However, according to Vakasha Sazdev, the Quint's legal editor, the issue with these terms come when trying to define what constitutes as a war crime or genocide. He explained in details what these two terms mean and how tricky it will be to make a case against Russia. When there is a violation of humanitarian law, then you have when you know sort of international criminal law kicks in, and that's where the concept of a war crime comes. So war crimes, uh, the best current definition you'll find is in the Rome Statute, so which is the uh, uh, a treaty which set up the uh, International Criminal Court. So there's a very detailed definition of war crimes there, which is based on 
customary international law. It, it, you know, it takes into account even things which were there in the Geneva Conventions. It looks at what was there for the Nuremberg trials. So it's the most comprehensive definition of what a war crime is. And the main point is that, it, that, they, that the primary example of that are sort of grave breaches of the Geneva Conventions, right? So things like willful killing uh, of, of, of civilians, willful killing of medical personnel, willful, uh, you know, attacks on schools, attacks on hospitals, those kind of things. You know, the fact that if you're just going to go to a civilian area and just start attacking buildings there, like like large-scale bombing, which is not justified by military necessity, right? So where it's not something which there's an actual military target there. You're just, you know, pounding a city which has no military personnel in it as well just to attack the civilians. That also would be a war crime, right? Uh, or as we said, you know, things the way you're doing stuff to um, uh, to uh, uh, soldiers as well, like, you know, so surrendered soldiers, at, you know, attacking them and, and, and not giving them a fair trial. This is also a war crime. Um, the, some of the more specific things which obviously then come up in connection with what we're seeing in Ukraine are uh, unlawful deportation, sort of forcing people to go from one place to another. We've been reading a lot of reports about how this has been happening from Mariupol, where uh, civilians were forcibly taken from Ukraine into Russian territory. Uh, the taking of hostages as well, there's been some incidents of that. So all of these things would fall within the definition of war crime. So, you know, you can look, if you look at Article 8 of the Rome Statute, um, there are some other things which, which are, again, specifically uh, important to remember in the context of Ukraine is uh, intentionally directing attacks against a civilian population um, uh, or, uh, you know, for instance, killing combatants who laid down arms, bombarding, uh, uh, you know, conducting large-scale bombardment of villages or, or things, or even launching an attack where you know that it's likely to cause a, a, a massive loss of civilian life without any particular uh in the military advantage being gained or even something which just destroys the environment like if you're just going to just destroy a bunch of trees for instance in a place so there's so it's a very 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 wide uh you know very very massive uh definition like if you look at the rome statute it takes up nearly like three pages the definition of uh of war crimes and uh you know it even covers it covers a lot of other sp very very specific things which have been uh, acknowledged to not be a massive problem in war of late, you know, when you're looking at not just, you know, killings or or torture or or confinement or deportation, but even now, for instance, rape and sexual violence against uh, a civilian population by uh, an armed force coming through. That is, again, something which falls within this definition. War crimes and crimes against humanity, there are many things which are very similar between them, but crimes against humanity require a sort of intentional, systematic, widespread attack on a, on a particular civilian population uh, to be to meet the threshold for it to be a crime against humanity, whereas war crimes sort of, sort of deal can, can deal with even isolated incidents of this kind of nature during the course of a war. And in a sense, war crimes are one of the easier aspects of international humanitarian law and international criminal law to be able to prove because as we said you know even isolated incidents can be can be brought up in that context and within that then you'd be looking at the specific forces which conducted and and if uh, you know the, this conduct was known to people further up the, the chain of command then even they can be held responsible as well uh, now genocide is also defined in the rome statute it goes of course there by the definition which is there but uh, you know as we know the rome statute is not uh, uh, signed by all the countries across the world uh, it's not been ratified by most of them either but on the other hand you do have obviously the uh, convention on the prevention and punishment of the crime of genocide which is widely adopted and the rome statute's definition of genocide does mostly refer to this right so if we look at the definition of that it's it, it is written as 
means any of the following acts committed with an intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group as such. And then there are uh, the specific terms are, you know, killing members of the group. That's an obvious one, obviously. But even causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of that group, if the, again, with the intent to uh, destroy them in whole or in part. Deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. So, for instance, if you have a massive economic blockade uh, or you're denying uh, key essential services to a community, even if you're not actually shooting them down, that will still fall within the measure of genocide or imposing measures intended to prevent birth within the group. So that could be forced sterilizations, that could be not allowing uh, people of particular groups to be able to, be able to associate within themselves, uh, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. So these are all the ingredients of what can co count as genocide, uh, according to the Genocide Convention. Now, genocide is a much trickier uh, crime to be able to prosecute anyone for because the intent threshold is so high, right? There has to be an intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group. Now, in that context, what's been going on in uh, on Ukraine's territory, what the Russian forces are supposed to be doing, is a lot tougher to be able to establish. So even though this is sort of within the scope of even what the ICC prosecutor is going to be looking at, it is quite hard to establish that intent because, I mean, you could say that, yes, the idea is to, as a national group, to kill off the Ukrainians. But if we look at the extent to which that, that's been taking place, or we look at the, we're looking at the measures, it's unclear yet if that uh, threshold has met, been met. So, for instance, uh, the USA, uh, while it has a, a accused Russia of war crimes, they've said that as of now, at this point of time, they're not aware of enough to be able to make a claim of genocide. But they've said, obviously, that that situation can change. So, for instance, if you discover uh, policy documents, you find more uh, efforts were being made to exterminate uh, the Ukrainian population, then that would work. Reckless killing of civilians or endangerment of them or with bombardments, etc., even, uh, you know, serious incidents where there were mass murders, that wouldn't necessarily rise to the threshold of genocide. So while war crimes, as we said, the threshold is easy to meet, of course, once you're able to have the the, the potential aggressors and the, and the, the, the perpetrators in the dock. Uh, with genocide, that's much, much harder. One of the strongest reactions from the Bucha killings, of course, came from Zelensky himself, who in an address to the UNSC on 5th April said that Russia's actions are quote-unquote no different from other terrorists such as Daesh who occupied some territory and that quote-unquote massacre in Bucha is only one of many examples. Condemnation has also, of course, came in from various Western leaders as well, with US President Joe Biden promising to impose new sanctions on Russia and to pursue a quote-unquote wartime trial to hold the Kremlin responsible. Some European countries like Germany, France, Latvia and Lithuania have also taken a direct aim at Russia and expelled dozens of Russian diplomats as part of a joint European reaction to the killings. And among these Western reactions was also that of India, who came forward with the strongest reaction yet on the war, but failed short of naming Russia in its statements at the UNSC. T.S. Tirumurthy, India's permanent representative to the UN, said that, quote-unquote, recent reports of civilian killings in Bucha are deeply disturbing. We unequivocally condemn these killings and support the call for an independent investigation, end quote. Mr. Onikrishan believes that while India was right to condemn the killings, the question of an independent investigation is tricky since creating a fair body to judge these attacks will be next to impossible. I think India has done the right thing. I mean, any kind of uh, crime against civilians, I understand that in a war, there are certain elements of collateral damage, right? So that, I mean, you know, you, uh, uh, I regret it, but I understand that there is collateral damage, whether the war is fought by the Americans or by the Russians. It doesn't matter. You know, on the last day of uh, the Afghan pullout by the US, 
we saw an innocent family being blasted away. So, you know, these things happen. But uh, this kind of cold-blooded murder of civilians, if the facts are right, is something that has to be condemned unequivocally. After all, even in the 21st century, there are some rules of war. And we have to, uh, while I understand collateral damage of civilians in the zone of war as a result of military actions, but cold-blooded murder is uh, murder and that should not be allowed and it should be uh, condemned and the perpetrators punished. You know, I, as I said Himmat, earlier, it all depends on what is meant by independent. Look, there are several questions. What happened to these satellite images on the 30th or 31st of March? Why did Maxar suddenly decide that they're showing it in Butch, specifically on the 4th of uh, April? You know, uh, there are a lot, many, why didn't you bring out genocide on 31st of March? Okay, if you were analyzing pictures and you were not clear what you were seeing, then maybe 1st of April. Okay, that was April Fool's Day, so you didn't want to do it. So, okay, maybe 2nd of April. I wait. There are lots of questions that are unanswered. There may be legitimate reasons for it. I'm not for a moment suggesting that, uh, you know, uh, there is uh, something wrong with those uh, photographs. I'm not saying they're doctored. After all, many of us relied on Maksar when uh, the standoff took place between India and China in 2020. You know, so I, I'm not questioning the veracity, but I'm just questioning why is it happening in this particular sequence? But as I said, an independent inquiry may be able to establish uh, what the actual sequence of events was and why there were these uh, what appears to be inexplicable delays. But an independent inquiry may also establish that the fault is not the Russians, that there are other people involved in this. That is a result that no independent inquiry will be allowed to announce. And even if they do, I mean, I, I'm sure that we have forensic science has developed to a level where many things are feasible. You know, given that the weaponry used by the Ukrainians and the Russians in many of their ways are very similar because both are legacy Soviet uh, weapons. Of course, now the Ukrainians may have a few American or Western uh, automatic machines. The Russians will have more modern versions of the Soviet weapons. But nevertheless, it should not be very difficult to, it may be difficult, but not impossible to establish the sequence of events if there is a genuinely independent inquiry held. As, as I said, the word independent is critical here. The West is also divided in its response to these killings. While some have called for a boycott against Russian oil and gas imports, others like Germany fear that such a move could plunge Europe in a severe economic and energy crisis. And for the past two months, we have seen the impact of searing sanctions slapped on Russia, with the ruble crashing 40% in its lowest when the invasion started. However, the ruble has since rebounded, and according to an NPR report, it is right back where it was at the time of the invasion. And sanctions so far have also not deterred the Kremlin, specifically Putin, from aggressing further in Ukraine. But the question is, what more can the West do apart from these sanctions? Mr. Unikrishnan Vezan. Well, you know, what is happening is that there is an element in countries like, let's say, Poland or Britain, where an element of sentiment is being trapped, uh, whipped up so that people actually go and fight for Ukraine. You know, so that internal pressure builds up and then these countries say. Now, I don't know whether they will be actually as countries be willing to uh, join this war because then there are several other issues because NATO will be coming into conflict with a nuclear power. 
I'm not sure that is what the United States wants. Uh, so, and United States is the significant main player in this game because uh, all said and done, this is a proxy war fought on Ukrainian territory between Russia and the US. So uh, there are a variety of possibilities, but you're absolutely right when you point out that so far the uh, sanctions that have been imposed have not uh, created the uh, necessary deterrence, uh, has not uh, stopped the Russians. And uh, I don't think that any further sanctions would likely uh, make them rethink what their current policy is. Uh, they sincerely believe that uh, NATO is an existential threat. They believe that this is an existential war that they are fighting. Uh, and there is, you know, the point is we can condemn it, say it's not the right way and all. I'm trying to tell you what the Russians perceive this to be. And uh, that is a reality we have to accept even if we disagree with uh, war as an instrument of politics. Uh, so this war will continue till the Russians get some kind of victory. Now, what that victory could be, I don't know. Uh, but, uh, you know, the outlines could be that they, uh, you know, expand the borders of the two rebellious republics already uh, that exist on the territory of Ukraine. Uh, they expand them till what is even within the Ukrainian constitution, their administrative borders, maybe take over the whole Donbass region uh, with its rich natural uh, resources, but they will not incorporate it into Russia. They would recognize this as a separate entity. Uh, I don't think Russia is looking at expanding its territory in that sense. Uh, and also maybe they would want to uh, expand and uh, establish some kind of controllable uh, land bridge to Crimea. Although that is not really very relevant because the little sliver of land that connects Crimea to the mainland is, is something that uh, really will require a lot of development if it has to become a major communication line. Uh, but yes, I mean, it, it is uh, something that would help uh, deliver water and other uh, essentials to the uh, peninsula. Uh, so as far as I'm concerned, to sum it all up, I don't think sanctions are going to deter Russia. I also don't see the NATO countries uh, sending in officially troops at this stage. Uh, but the danger exists of citizens of NATO countries volunteering to fight, some of them dying, and then you know levels of escalation go up. So this is uh, this war is fraught with all kinds of consequences, but unfortunately the West seems to think that they are sniffing at possibility of regime change, so they are not pressuring uh, Ukraine to uh, reach a settlement. Instead you know, they're supplying arms and this war will continue. That's all, sadly. We at The Big Story have been covering the war since the start with deep dives into Russia's every move and aggression in Ukraine. If you have missed any of those episodes, you can find a link to them in our show notes. 
If you liked listening to this episode, please subscribe to the Big Story for episodic updates. We're available on Apple, Google Podcasts, Spotify, GeoSavan, and most of the other popular podcast streaming platforms. For other podcasts, please log on to the Quint website. And for any feedback, please shoot an email to podcast at thequint.com. Thanks for listening. Log on to the Quint website and check out our other podcasts.